Hi everyone, BJ here, and welcome to another episode of the Eurospeak podcast. On today's episode, we're strapping on our harnesses, flight suits, and paragliders, and looking at the European influences on Korean drama, known as K-drama for short. In particular, we will be examining the show entitled Crash Landing on You, at least that's what it's called in English. The drama series has developed a global following, especially once it was picked up by Netflix, and audiences around the world binged its episodes while sheltering in place during the pandemic. It has fan groups in many countries, and its producers have remarked about the many interview and information requests they have received from media companies throughout the world. The story is about two star-crossed lovers, Yoon Seri, a South Korean fashion entrepreneur and heiress, and Ri Jong Hyuk, a member of North Korea's political elite and a captain in the country's special police force. One day, while Seri was paragliding near Seoul, a tornado blows her off course into North Korean territory. There, she meets Ri Jong Hyuk, and the love story unfolds over 16 episodes from that point. From classical music to traveling around Switzerland to high fashion, the show about a love story between North and South Korean characters displays some unexpected connections with Europe. Joining me to talk about this particular K-drama is Oliver, who is a political science professor and director of the Korean Studies program at the Ateneo de Manila University. Welcome, Oliver. Hello, BJ. Thank you for allowing me to paraglide into today's episode. I'm very excited to learn. We're glad to have you here, and hopefully the winds have not blown you off course. <laughs> hopefully, and I look forward to our conversation on uh, Korea. Yes, and Europe. Yes, so much to say, and so much that I don't know. So I'm going to be learning a lot today as well. I think that's good because I'm also a very excited to learn more about this topic. Knowing fully well that you know this craze over Korean culture has really escalated, especially during this pandemic. Yeah, it's true. I believe that you know it's not just the drama, but also the music. My gosh, definitely, uh, especially nowadays because you know now that uh, we have had a lot of very popular singers mm-hmm. who have filled our Spotify lists, including actually my sisters who have turned into BTS fans overnight. Oh my gosh, yeah, BTS is a huge deal. It's pretty amazing that they took over the world now. I think they're winning all these awards and they're number one everywhere. Yes, and in fact, my sisters have really gone crazy over them so much so that today a lazada package arrived containing a pillow <laughs> a pillow with a design uh, with, with the face of a bts <laughs> have you not been pulled into their craze as well i think i have the responsibility to be pulled in at some point <laughs> <laughs> i feel that i have to to peer into this world uh, so to speak Knowing fully well that it is not just about culture and it has repercussions also. Sorry for sounding academic into the economic and political realms. It's true. And on that note, I'm really happy to have you joining us since not only can we talk about K-drama, but maybe we can draw on your international relations expertise to understand the relationship between North and South Korea, as well as, you know, the Korean Peninsula and Europe. 
But perhaps I could begin by asking you this, Oliver. I know your scholarly work links with Korea a lot, and you mentioned that your sisters are huge fans of BTS. But do you personally like Korean popular culture? Do you watch K-dramas? Do you listen to the music? Well, personally, I am quite new when it comes to experiencing and uh, getting to know more about this pop culture. I'm really more of an old soul in the sense that I like the traditional culture very much. In fact, that is something that I really connect to easily. In terms of Korean pop culture, I have limited exposure to it. And yet, it is always something that I experienced during my three-year stay in Korea. So, do I actually like Korean popular culture? Yes, in the sense that it brings out a different side of the Korean nation. And specifically, if you ask me, I think I've already, I've only watched, finished at least five Korean dramas. And uh, the tendency for me kasi is to, <laughs> I don't want to start a Korean drama because I would just end up binging on it and not <laughs> finishing all my tasks. But music, I've also been exposed to a lot of pop music as well. And, uh, well, I can't sing really in Korean straight. But I know quite a few, but I'm leaning towards the more sentimental ones and not okay. and not the pop ones. Okay, not not the not the dancey ones we see on on TV and yeah. on, online all the time. Correct, but you know I'm almost this close to learning the steps. But but <laughs> yes, I I am I'm really enjoying this new newfound interest. I would like to say actually not really newfound, but continued interest in. Korean popular culture. It's different because when you experience it in your home country, for instance. I see, I see. And I mean, I think you're experiencing it at a time when it's very popular, just really popular everywhere. It's it's amazing how popular it's become. Yes, and it has taken on in many forms. Through music, through Korean drama, even this heightened interest in Korean food. All your experience and your recent newfound interest in Korean popular culture makes you the perfect guest to discuss our topic. Not to mention the three years that you spent living there. I'm sure you were exposed to a lot. So perhaps to start us off, uh, would you like to share your thoughts on the show, Crash Landing on You? Do you like it? Is it deserving of the hype that it received in 2020 this year? Well, the show is quite interesting in the sense that it touches upon political issues and uh, for someone whose uh, main <laughs> body of work revolves around politics and international relations it's quite yes. interesting because it does not only try to show people what south korean and north korean culture is mm-hmm. but i would like to show uh, to, to think that it also contains some sort of message no on mm. how how south korea wants to approach the idea of reunification, perhaps, in the Mm. 21st century. And the beautiful thing about it is that we are actually being drawn to this topic, to this idea, very political idea, and yet it is centered uh, on a love story between two very interesting adults, but but also members of the the elite. Yeah, Yeah, that is I, I like it and it deserves the hype it get, it's getting uh, right now because it is mm-hmm. able to reformulate the, the K-drama plot. No? What, when I say reformulate, 
if you really think about it, most K-dramas, okay, if you look at the plot of K-dramas, mm-hmm. they just repeat. And this is, of course, based on what I have also read. No? Most of the time, their plot is quite simple. You know? It's like okay. a man uh, usually meets a, a woman, a woman who is very fearless. And it is also very beautiful already because <laughs> it shatters the stereotype that the happiness of the girl depends on the man. But at some point, it really it does also show that it does. So it's quite weird. <laughs> and then a man who's very sad and incomplete, who feels so incomplete, uh, they meet and then uh, you know magic happens. Right. And but the beautiful thing about this series is that the magic here delves into what uh, might happen if the two Koreas suddenly find themselves reunited. And I, I think see. this wishful thinking is what mm-hmm. draws people together. And Filipinos especially, because Filipinos like those impossible situations. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and I mean, it's interesting though that its appeal isn't just in the Philippines. It's It seems to be all over the world too. I guess everyone needs some wishful thinking these days. Yes, and I, I would always tell to my friends it also some, fulfills some sort of fantasy. Like going against all odds, even going across the demilitarized zone. I think that's the highest form of love that one can <laughs> ever show. <laughs> if you're go, if you're able to go through landmines, I think yeah. uh, if you're able to find someone who's willing to go through that high-level security, I guess you should say yes. Yeah, probably. Especially if you manage to survive that, that must be an intense bonding experience. Exactly, and <laughs> it's more than just the two of us. It's actually two nations. Well, it's one nation, two countries falling in. Falling again in love with each other. Yes. That's interesting. I mean, I never thought about the more cerebral aspect of it, the more the metaphor of one nation and two countries and how this the K-drama could actually be a representation of that that sort of thing. So it seems like the the hype is deserved. There there are many levels to the show and it is popular for a reason, which I guess brings me to another question. So when I was doing some reading about the show, I actually encountered the concept of the Hallyu or Korean mm. wave. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And is Crash Landing on You connected to this phenomenon? Yes, actually. It's actually a term coined in China, actually, oh. by the People's Daily. It's in 2000, if I'm not mistaken, the year 2000. And generally, Hallyu or the Korean wave refers to a grand, you originally referred to the grand performances made by Korean pop music stars. But over time, yeah, it has taken on a wider scope no, in terms of meaning. And it refers to this enthusiasm over Korean pop culture. When we were still young, in the 90s, it first spread to East Asia, so Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, and then eventually to Southeast Asia. And then at the start of the new millennium, it, it, it came into full swing in, in Latin America, in Central Asia, and even Europe. So, however, in Europe, when you talk about Europe, since we're on the topic of Europe as well, it's really just starting to spread there. And uh, it has met a lot of reactions, both negative and positive. Interestingly, this collective term, no, Hallyu, which is mm-hmm. actually which refers to the phenomenal growth of Korean culture, 
and popular culture no, is finding its way to Europe already. And uh, yeah. and it's quite interesting because, you know, at the end of the day, Halyu is a cultural product. So, mm. it is something which is being transported from one place to another. And True. it's so interesting to see how even Europeans can be that open. <laughs> I'm not saying that Europeans, but it, because it's so difficult to penetrate and in, yeah. uh, to, to, to influence such uh, I mean, the European culture is very much uh, yeah. well-founded already. I wouldn't say intact, yeah. but uh, to be able to, pr- to, to produce something and get your attention in the state. It's true. And I mean, I, I highly doubt that many of the consumers of Hallyu or Korean popular culture even understand the language, but they appreciate it nonetheless. Exactly. That is what really gets my attention and it really makes yeah. me think. You know why? Because if you think about it, in terms of melody, for example, in the songs, the Filipinos, for instance, also have good melodies when it comes to the songs. No? Yeah. And this is a practice that I would usually, an exercise I would usually do. I would replace Korean songs you know, with Filipino words. And then, okay. and then suddenly, I would ask my friends and even my do you still like it? How it sounds? It also tells you something about this sense of it being foreign, something yeah. that that you would want to understand, which attracts you to it. This, um, yeah. if I don't know if there's such a term as foreignity of it, the foreignness of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this foreign product, you know, which comes to your shores. It's not just limited to one form because Hallyu, uh, the Korean wave, it encompasses everything from music, movies, mm-hmm. drama, and even to ano, ha, online games and Korean cuisine. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> it's a big wave. It is a big wave. It's a wave that I didn't even consider the size of. <laughs> I did not know it was such a big wave. And speaking of its penetration of Europe, I mean... I recall that I was, I believe it was in Poland, I think last year or prior to the pandemic, last year or two years ago. And it was very interesting because one of the things that came up during my conversations with students was BTS. The popularity of BTS was there already. And normally when I think of a place like Poland, it's quite insular, as you said, quite difficult for cultural products to penetrate, especially... I would imagine if they don't understand it, and yet it was there. And the other really cool example is, again, with BTS. They they managed to sell out one of the biggest venues in the UK. Um, oh! Nobody thought that they could do it. Actually, the, the producers said, you know, no one's going to buy tickets to this. And then they, they sold out not one, but two performances. So it was only supposed to be one, but because of the demand, it became two. I didn't know that. I think that's also what's very interesting about this Hallyu wave. You know, the fans can be, can either be super out there or sometimes they are just also in the process of discovering it themselves. And and when they already show up in the concert, you'll be surprised. There's so many. There are a lot of, I wouldn't call them closet K-pop fans. (laughs) At some point, it will manifest. But... (laughs) It's really interesting how they're able to, to bring together people. Yes, yes, that's true. And I guess on that note, we can start to explore some of the ways that the 
crash landing on you series influenced Europe, but also mm-hmm. is influenced by Europe. I, I guess we can start with the influences by Europe. And since this is the Eurospeak podcast, I thought it might be worthwhile to explore some of the references to Europe that we find in the show. So first of all, there's classical music, which I know you like, Oliver. You know a great deal about it, I think. As we watch the show, we discover that Ri Jong-hyok, the male protagonist, is not only a soldier in the North Korean military, but a talented concert pianist. And like all classically trained musicians, he performs pieces from famous European composers, including Frédéric Chopin's Nocturne and Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune. Or if there are any French speakers listening, Claire de Lune. There is even a scene where Yoon Seri, the female protagonist, proclaims that she's a good piano player because she can play Beethoven's Fur Elise without the need for sheet music, to which the North Korean soldier responds, Don't say you can play the piano well just because you can play furries. Kind of <laughs> snobbish. Uh, I feel attacked. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I think a lot of people feel attacked. That's the first thing I learned. I think when I started doing piano lessons, and which I have since abandoned. But because one of the main characters is supposed to be a piano prodigy, there are references made to classical piano pieces and European composers whose melodies are recognizable throughout the world. That said. I think it might be worthwhile to explore how Korean audiences would interpret the presence of this type of music. Based on some background research I've done, South Korea has produced some fantastic classical musicians and opera singers. Oliver, perhaps you could share your knowledge on the place of classical music in South Korean culture. Does it have any special meaning among the people there? Well, when you talk about Western classical music, Because I, I think they would also, well, in the academic sense, they also would try to differentiate it from Korean classical music. Mm-hmm. You talk about these uh, Western classical composers, which are so difficult to play, especially Chopin. It's quite popular in South Korea because, well, based on my experience, there, there is so much interest that goes into this part of their Culture. Koreans are really fascinated with Europe in the sense that they have tried to really get to know more its culture. Uh, one of the ways that they try to actually get to know more European, the more this European culture and even history at, uh, at some point is through classical music. We all know that the traditional Korean music is very unique in terms of sound. No? So where where does this classical music how does it enter the picture and if you really ask me why you know i wouldn't really know but i i've read somewhere you know that western classical music came to korea because of missionaries at the end of the 19th century i think it was in the 1880s that the first american missionaries entered the peninsula And they brought with them Western folk songs, hymns, of course, together with the Bible. And when Korea was annexed by Japan, some years after, the Japanese also tried to control the spread of Korean culture in the sense that they tried to inculcate a different type of culture. What they mean by this? Because, you know, as that for Koreans being subjugated by the Japanese was to come up with new art forms that would stir patriotic feelings, okay? So what the Japanese would do 
was to replace it okay with Japanese culture. I think this is one of the main projects during that time. I'm no expert in history, but they were trying to suppress, to kill, and even try to make sure that the Korean culture will not thrive because ah. it will awaken their sense of identity and nationalism. What they tried to do was to redirect this interest through mm-hmm. the admiration of Western culture, through the songs that were taught in school. There was one of a leading composer by the name of Hong Yu-Hu who tried to re-understand if new Korean music ba- based on the Western music system. And this paved the way for Koreans to actually uh-huh. not just try to get to know Western music, but also try to learn it and study it as not only as an art form, but also as a process. So they were really drawn towards the classical and the romantic period. They were trying to absorb this Western music so much so that I read somewhere that uh, more and more Koreans wanted to learn classical piano. Um, and I think this is also a phenomenon that has spread across Asia. Diba? More and more parents <laughs> would want their children to learn piano. I think, yeah. I, I think my mother is Korean, therefore. Um, <laughs> In that sense. <laughs> of course, diba? wanting your children because it was suddenly connected to this sophisticated way of looking at the world. Suddenly, classical music, Western classical music, took on a different form. It was also a symbol of not really affluence, but this mm-hmm. higher level of appreciation for art. I of course, see. together with the visual art. Koreans are also very crazy about uh, Western art. No? So, oh, hey, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, they're very uh, much into it as well. And I think on a personal level, from how I see them mm-hmm. approach a certain interest or even a hobby, you know, this, this discipline that is instilled in learning classical music resonates very well with Confucian values. That's why I don't like <laughs> learning <laughs> classical music. And because for those of us who learn piano, yeah. classical music is very constrained in the sense yeah, that yes. you really follow it every note, even the numbering of the fingers. Yes. And that is something that I have always struggled with as a pianist as well. <laughs> and I think that is why they see the beauty of classical music. And this also helped them rediscover their own music. So much so that there is a resurgence after they were liberated from Japan, a resurgence of classical Korean music. Wherein this traditional Korean music started to to thrive again, no? and mm. uh, this really reflected more than anything the dreams of a people who would want to reclaim their identity. And Western classical music became a vehicle for that. Oh, that's cool. That's that's really interesting. Actually, I know that you mentioned that. Or, or the way that it was discussed is is quite historical. In your experience, more recently though, if an opera were to be staged in mm. Korea, would people watch? Or if there are classical music concerts, do people watch? Yes, actually, Koreans really love spending their free time exposing themselves to art, experiencing yes. art. And there are a lot of theaters, there are a lot of concert halls in Korea. And... Mm. 
they would always feature classical music in their okay. repertoire. So you will have uh, pianists, concert pianists, orchestras from from abroad, even the local ones. Children also thrive very well in in art school. They have music mm-hmm. school over, and they would feature the works of Western masters, you know, like Chopin, yeah. uh, Tchaikovsky, even opera. I had a very interesting experience of asking my friends to watch Carmen with me. Okay, this is George Bizet, right? Yes. Okay. And if I'm not mistaken, it's in the National Theater. So we really okay. had dressed up, right? Interestingly, though, the the opera was not in Korean, but the subtitles mm-hmm. were in Korean. So, <laughs> so it was very interesting because we didn't understand anything at the end of the day. Of course, we are familiar with the music of, of the said opera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a usual it's a usual uh, thing for them to spend their weekends watching Carmen. It's a common thing, and another experience that I, I can fondly recall is that they would also perform classical music in open spaces. There was this beautiful, crazy per- performance that I watched. There were ten pianos, no, outside. Wow. I think it was in the park, no, while okay. buses were passing by behind us. No? Ten okay. people were playing the same piece at the same time, of course, with variation. Yeah. Very interesting. Thing as well. Another, of oh, course, yeah. highlight of my day there is attending Yo-Yo Ma's uh, concert. Wow. Uh, yeah. Jealous. <laughs> Very jealous. <laughs> Nobody wanted to go with me, but of course, that's Yo-Yo Ma. So, yeah. again, I had to dress up, but I was already alone. Because when we watched Carmen, they were so bored already. We walked out before the second act. <laughs> I think Europeans would get mad at us. But... <laughs> Uh, but that's it. It has translated into to art as well. If I may just share this very beautiful experience as well. Uh, we're in the images that were painted by Van Gogh. And they were projected on very high walls. Okay. I think we've seen this already. Eh? But yeah. even before people were crazy about it, Korea was already doing that in 2013 or 14. I'm not sure. I see. So, okay, okay. Wow. So that's how much... They have really tried to immerse themselves in in European culture. Right, that's that's kind of cool. So that means that a Korean person watching Crash Landing on You, when they see these classical pieces being played, they will know that that's classical music, and they will they will then start to have these images of someone who is probably educated, classically trained, that sort of thing in their minds. Yeah, it res- it will resonate with them. Because they they actually grew up listening to this type of music. Okay, that's cool. That's that's really interesting, actually. I guess moving on a little bit, while we're on the topic of exchanges with Europe, the main characters in the show have scenes in Switzerland engaging in tourist activities. Is this an experience that typical South Koreans could easily relate with, just traveling to Switzerland <laughs> or, or, you know, uh, around? Yes, because... If I'm not mistaken, because I, I when I lived there and studied there, I've had around six Korean roommates. They okay. changed every semester. And they would always share the experiences, their travel experiences in Europe. It's a usual thing for a Korean students to actually travel alone or with friends to Europe after during the summer. So it's something that they usually do because they don't need any visas. 
if you ask any typical university student, majority of them will tell you that they have been to Europe. At least France, huh? France is another country that they really uh, crazy, crazy. That that sounds like the number one destination for them. Yeah, they're really crazy about it. In fact, this is the, in their interest in 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 French, in French film, French lifestyle. Uh, not so much in fashion because you know Korea's fashion is quite uh, unique as well. But they would spend, as I said, their 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 holidays going to to France, Switzerland, and uh, they would learn European languages as well. So when when you talk about main characters traveling to Europe and spending their time there, it is something that the the average Korean would connect to. Okay, so it's not unusual for them. Yeah, because to, I mean, just to put it on the table, they can afford it. I think one related question I would have would be why Switzerland? I'm not sure if this is accurate, but I've heard that, you know, Kim Jong Un, the leader of North Korea, supposedly went to school there for some years. Is there anything special about the relationship between North Korea and Switzerland that makes it the travel destination of North Korean elites and therefore a place that has some significance in crash landing on you? I think before answering that question, it's it's also good to point out that it's usual for Korean dramas to feature European destinations in their plot. If you think about it, one of the more well, one of the earlier ones, the earlier key dramas is uh, Lovers in Paris, right? So this interest in European culture is also reflected in Korean drama. And this is not the first time Europe was featured in K-dramas. Why Switzerland, of all places? I think they chose Switzerland because of that reference to Kim Jong-un as well. But more than anything, Switzerland has always been seen as a neutral country in terms of its relationship with North and South Korea. And that's that's right, no? It is said that Kim Jong-un attended a private school in, I don't know how to pronounce it, but is it Gumligan in Switzerland? Okay, he had a different name actually. He was called Cholpak or Pak Chol, and he studied there during the 90s, 1993 to 1998, I think. Nobody knew who he was. So imagine having a random, a random Korean classmate, but she didn't know that it was actually the son. <laughs> North Korea's <laughs> leaders, no? So, right. but during that time, no, Kim Jong-un was described as someone who was shy, a good student who was actually getting along, was getting along well with his classmates. And I think that is also where he, de- he started to develop his love for basketball. And for the longest time, I think there's also an embassy there, a North Korean embassy there. In Switzerland? Yeah, I think, if I'm not mistaken, a consulate of some sort. And I think that also plays a very important role in the series because since it's a neutral neutral ground, it's a place where they can both meet, where South Koreans and North Koreans can interact normally. And that's why I think they chose Switzerland. Of course, aside from it being a quite a romantic destination. Yeah, true. They do make it seem really, really nice. Yes, actually. In fact, I don't know if you if you finished the series, but there's even a part that you know the the main guy, Captain Lee, was playing the 
the piano beside a lake. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's Korean Hollywood, quote unquote, working already. Right. <laughs> I I actually remember seeing that and thinking, oh, I wonder where this lake is that has a piano next to it, and why does the piano's wood not rot? Yeah. <laughs> I I was also thinking perhaps it is also some sort serves as some sort of symbolism of Switzerland for the reuni- reunited, uh, reunified Korea. No, we're both. North Koreans and South Koreans can express their love for each other. Yeah. It also talks about how two lovers are trying to, to work through their relationship, work out their relationship, right? And for some reason, international relations is a concern. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's international relationship yes. in international relations. Okay. International relations. <laughs> And for some reason, they were also able to incorporate the paragliding activity. Yeah, that's true. They were. They were. It actually makes me wonder now if I should go do that if ever I get to visit Switzerland after this pandemic. <laughs> But so interestingly, a lot of people are now suddenly interested in Switzerland also. Oh, that's cool. When you talk to Filipinos, most of the time they would want to go to the usual ones like France, Italy. Germany, and perhaps if you have more money, Spain. But suddenly, everyone is now interested in going to Switzerland because of crash landing on you. Yeah. In fact, I know some of our colleagues who would want to study there as well. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Hoping to meet their own <laughs> captain in the future. Oh, wow. But you know, That's very interesting, right? Yeah, it is. I, I I was going to say that if they are looking for one, they should probably learn paragliding. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess it depends how much you're willing to spend for a future relationship. Uh, that's what you call investing <laughs> in one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. It is an investment. <laughs> exactly. But you know, I would say magaling, angaling, because they were able to make the connection, and as a <laughs> Polsai person, I can see, you know, the IR aspect working behind the scenes. So, in fact, you can assign this drama series to our majors. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you do teach international relations. I suppose you can now, you now have a plausible reason to make them all watch this. Yes, in <laughs> fact, no, you can even talk about the Cold War. <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. true. You can. And of course, as a companion, they should probably listen to this episode. Exactly. Having discussed a little bit about traveling to Europe and also European art and music, maybe we can also talk about fashion. So on that topic, I noticed that the North Korean elites in Crash Landing on You, they would go to a shopping mall that seemed to have European designer fashion or at least clothing that was in that style. I'm not sure if you can comment on your European fashion in North Korea, Oliver, mm. but if not, maybe we can talk about South Korea. How do they view European designer products? I think in terms of fashion, which I'm not really an expert of, but based on my observation, They would always try their best to immerse, I said, as I said earlier, in, in European fashion, just to get ideas and be inspired, because the at the very heart of the Korean psyche is really creativity. They're very much excited in getting to know the world, what is out there, and bring it, bringing it home, but at the same time giving it a local twist. I, I wouldn't call it localization. 
but you know reinterpreting a certain aspect perhaps here in our uh, example of, of french fashion and and making it into their into something that they can call their own i think i've, I've also seen this in the way that they have restyled the cafe experience Koreans are really crazy about ah, coffee. Ah, really? Okay. But more than anything, coffee for them is more than a drink. It also represents a certain lifestyle, a way of living, which I think also European at the very core. This, this idea that just to sit down and have coffee, um, look at passersby, chit-chat with friends, spend your whole afternoon just sitting and doing nothing. No? I, it might be stereotypical, but I think there's some sort of Europeanness, yeah. You know? I mean, this, and I think it's not because it is limited to Europeans as well. But the Europeans were able to bring out this lifestyle through through the coffee shop experience. That's right. You actually reminded me of one of my few trips to Korea, and I did notice that there are so many cafes, and they're always mm. full. They're always full. <laughs> it's a lifestyle, but when you enter. It looks Korean, it's quirky, but you know, sometimes European classical music is playing. Food as well, I noticed. The the pastries, um, I mean, the pastries are definitely French. Yes, exactly. There's this very unique way for Koreans to, I would call it mix and match it, to, to actually try to make something which is out there a part of their own. Because they are showing to the rest of the world that we are not, here away from you we i mean we are not isolated from the rest of the world we actually have snippets little little parts of the world happening inside of this peninsula and we are able to appreciate it in a very korean way and how they also try to recreate that cafe experience they're really crazy about coffee because coffee is, is something which is foreign to them as well. It was brought to them by foreigners. Coffee does not grow in South Korea, I think. I, I don't and, think so either. Yeah, you're right. Uh, in fact, they don't have a word for coffee. They don't. So it's just, they call it coffee, is it? it they call it coffee. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess it's yeah. a borrowed word. Oh, that's mm. interesting. And I, I do get that experience that you mentioned uh, of coffee shops being that way, classical music being played. Uh, I suppose the only difference is they have very fast Wi-Fi that happens to be free. Yeah, and even the names, no? the names of the cafes are either in French, German. Right, yes. the, one of the more popular bake shops in Korea, the name is Paris Baguette. So oh. uh, that's where we buy our cakes for the scholars I when I was studying. When you had the Paris Baguette cake, you were big time. Oh, I see. <laughs> and I assume that they were, they were making, you know, like French-style pastries. There's probably croissants there. There's macarons yeah. or whatever. Um, that, that... Yeah, they're crazy about macarons for some reason. Oh, they are. Okay. <laughs> I did not expect that. But now that we're talking about it, I think that this deserves another episode. <laughs> Perhaps after you've written it, yeah. uh, we can talk about it in a future Perhaps. episode. So having discussed all of the different European influences in Crash Landing on You and also on South Korea as a whole, would you say that the show somehow reflects how Europe is viewed by South Koreans? I think so, yes. It also shows us how they look at the world more than anything, right. I guess. Because these Korean dramas are effective vehicles 
for for Korea to actually introduce itself to the rest of the world, what they have to offer, and how much of the world is present in their world. So, yes, it reflects not only their love or attraction to Europe, but I think it also shows you how the Korean culture is slowly evolving as well, that it is not stagnant, it has changed over time, and it continues no, to change other cultures as well. I think that's the last point that's, that's quite beautiful to, to, to touch upon, no? how it is actually transforming the rest of the world. Yeah. In as much as Europe transformed or perhaps has greatly shaped their own culture, or has influenced some parts of their culture, Korean culture is now taking over. Yeah, <laughs> the word, the way, no, the way is taking over our lives, and Korean culture has become part of our households already. So that's it, no. It's it has become part of how we live no? and how we think. Even our travel plans are affected by it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. And I guess an indicator of its significance is also the fact that it's become big enough that we're doing an episode on it in a, in a podcast supposedly about Europe. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's kind of cool. So we ended up discussing representations of Europe through our conversation about Crash Landing on You. And so before we end, um, Oliver has agreed to teach me something in Korean. And I hope, I am hoping, I don't completely ruin this. <laughs> so, Oliver, can you teach me to say thank you for listening and goodbye in Korean? And I really hope I don't regret this. Okay, I also hope I don't regret this, no? Teaching you, because when I was studying Korean, I wasn't really that confident when it comes to speaking. But let's try. Let's try, yes. So, it's honor. Okay, let's try it one part by part. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay, let's yeah. <laughs> I will I am concentrating very hard right now. You have no idea. So you're, you're familiar with Gamsamnida, right? Yes. Okay, that's thank you. Let's try to nail the first part. Okay. So it's onil. Onu. Oh my gosh, can we break that down or is that one word? It's one word. Oh, so it's Turo. Turo is to hear. Turo Jusho is listening to us. Oh gosh. Turo Jusho. Oh, Gamsamida. 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 Correct. Okay. So, because you're the host, you will, Korean say goodbye different ways. Eh? Oh, so, geez. if you're the one saying goodbye, it's different. When you're the one saying, and if you're the one leaving the group saying goodbye, it's also different. I see. So, for, for the host, you say, Anyong Kaseo. Anyong Kaseo. You put he. Anyongi kaseo. Anyongi kaseo. So it's onu je yagiru. Okay, so onu je yagiru. Turo jusoso gamsamnida. 
Dura Jushasa. Correct. Okay, so one more. Onul J. Yagiru. Onul J. Yagiru. Dura Jushasa. Kamsamnida. Dura Jushasa. Kamsamnida. Correct. So the whole sentence is Onul J. Yagiru. Dura Jushasa. Kamsamnida. Onul J. Yagiru. Dura Jushasa. Kamsamnida. Anyong ni kaseyo. Thank you very much for inviting me to be with you in this episode. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Oliver. That was that was so cool. And thank you for teaching me as well and being such a patient teacher. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, awesome. I believe with that phrase, we can use that to end. I'd like to thank Oliver for joining me on this episode. And much gratitude also goes to our audience who continues to follow our episodes. To you all, I say, Onul Jayakirul Duro Jushoso Kamtsamnida Anyong Nikaseo. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Eurospeak podcast. If you like what you heard, why not leave us a five-star review? And for more episodes, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you want to get in touch with us, our email address is contact.eurospeak at gmail.com. <laughs>